Good morning. Uh, for those of you who don't know, I'm Mark Schlador, and I serve as an elder here at Cross Point. Um, and you probably noticed when you came in, as I did, there's kind of a musty smell in here, and I want to point out that that's because there was problems with the AC earlier in the week. It's not because the old guy is preaching. <laughs> it's a rumor to that effect. Anyway, um, I want to welcome you to our celebration service this morning. Um, it's my privilege to be able to preach to you this morning, to bring the word. My wife, Jana, and I also serve on the advocacy board of for the Brevard County chapter of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, which is a worldwide college campus ministry that Crosspoint helps contribute to through our God-given gifts of time, talent, and treasure. Many of you have worked and served in a, some, some kind of capacity um, to help out with InterVarsity. Recently, um, InterVarsity college students at Florida Tech and Eastern Florida State College set up a welcome booth on their respective campuses and they ask the question that sits at the heart of today's sermon. A question we see time and again throughout Luke's gospel. A question that is as relevant today as it was then. Who do you say Jesus is? Now the responses from these college students mirror what we might get if we ask this of any group of people in our community. Who do you say Jesus is? Here's a sampling a prophet to guide people to the right path, a symbol and figure of the Christian religion. Everything around us, the wind, the sun, he influences the good and bad in our lives. A great teacher, a great human being who is beneficial to how everyone acts today. A man just like Harry Potter, fictional. A God in the age of Rome who was prosecuted and hung on a cross. Another prophet, like Mohammed, who completed what Jesus had started. A character in a story I was told when I was young. A great philosopher of the past who taught moral values. An important historic figure. Who do you say Jesus is? Throughout the summer, we've been examining the meals of Jesus as recorded in the Gospel of Luke, but with a specific eye excuse me, toward discovering grace, community, and mission around the table, which, by the way, is the subtitle of Tim Chester's book, A Meal with Jesus. And we encourage you to pick up a copy of the book at the um, connection table outside this room. Uh, we ask for a $10 donation to cover the cost of the book, but if you don't have it, take a book. By all means, take a copy home. We've organized our Sunday services to track with the book, and lean into some of Chester's observations to help orient the series. So if you're reading the book along with this, some of what I'm talking about today, you'll be thinking, I've heard that somewhere before. Good. <clears throat> so today we'll be exam examining the meals as enacted hope through the lens of Luke chapter 9, verses 7 through 20. And if you didn't bring a Bible with you, you'll find one located on a seat near you or under a seat near you. Feel free to take notes in it, underline key phrases, mark it up, take it home if you want to. We've got plenty. Let's read together from Luke 9, beginning at verse 7. Luke 9, verse 7. 
Now Herod, the Tetrarch, heard about what was happening, and he was perplexed, because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Herod said, John I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. Verse 10, on the return, the apostles told him all that they had done. And he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, they followed him, and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to Jesus, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, You give them something to eat. They said, We have no more than five loaves and two fish unless we are to go and buy food for all these people. For there were about 5,000 men. And he said to his disciples, Have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so, and had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up, twelve baskets of broken pieces. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, who do the crowd say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. And we thank you that in your loving kindness and perfect wisdom, You've crafted your word to give us a glimpse into not only your holiness and power, but also into your compassion and grace. We thank you for your son, Jesus, who, though he was born in the form of, well, he was in the form of God, did not count himself equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, in the likeness of us. We thank you for your gift of the Holy Spirit, by whom your love has been poured out into our hearts. And finally, we ask that as we open your word this morning, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear so that we might better understand the passage, that it also might bring comfort to us and glory to you as we seek to point our community to Jesus. We thank and we pray these things in your name. Amen. So Luke sandwiches the narrative of the only miracle that's recorded in all four Gospels. The resurrection would be the other one, but this is the only miracle recorded in all four Gospels. And he sandwiches it between questioning the identity of Jesus. So Luke is suggesting here that the feeding of the 5,000 serves to reveal something about who Jesus is. The miracle in the wilderness explains Peter's response to the question, and how it's different than that of popular opinion. In verse 7, we see a picture of Herod. And Herod, it says, is perplexed. 
Who is this Jesus about whom I hear such things, he asks? Why does Herod seem so interested? Why should he care? Well, let's first examine some of the responses that Herod got to his question within his court. And the first is John the Baptist. And as we've just read, Herod had had John the Baptist beheaded. And he'd been manipulated into that act of having John the Baptist beheaded. See, John had publicly called out an adulterous and incestuous relationship between Herod and Herod's brother's wife. Ew. So Herod's brother's wife, Herodias, wanted to kill John. Mark's gospel tells us that Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he actually kept John safe. John's message had left Herod unsettled, frightened, and convicted. So Mark goes on in detail about a banquet Herod throws for his own birthday. Herod invites nobles, military commanders, all the leading lights of Galilee. As part of the entertainment, Herodias' daughter pleases Herod with a dance, and he rewards her by vowing to give her whatever she asks. Those of you who are here for the Esther sermon series are like, hmm, this sounds like a rerun. These guys probably should take notes on each other because it doesn't usually end well. Um, That provides Herodias with the opportunity to call for Herod's head or for John's head, excuse me, and it forces the king's hand. So word among the court is that Jesus might be the resurrected John the Baptist, or maybe a close disciple, and that concerned Herod. In addition, connections to Old Testament prophets also could spell trouble for a leader like Herod, because, see, Herod had sold out to the Roman authority for position. He was a king because they said he could be king. So who is this Jesus about who I hear such things, Herod asks. Another popular narrative going around the kingdom was that Jesus was Elijah. Well, why Elijah? Well, and some of you kids in the, in the service today know the story that Elijah was taken to heaven in a chariot of fire. He didn't die like we do. So the prophet Malachi closes out the Old Testament. Actually, the last words in the Old Testament promise that Elijah will return. Malachi writes, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Elijah was carried to heaven in a chariot of fire. So a literal return of Elijah makes sense. But perhaps Jesus is the prophet Elisha. I know that's confusing. I learned these stories 50 years ago and longer And I still mix them up. Elijah and Elisha. So when Elijah was transported to heaven, Elisha took his cloak as a sign of succession, making him the new Elijah. So it's easy to see why Jesus might be mistaken for the literal Elijah or a successor to the line of Elijah. 
And here's something interesting. In addition to the, fe the feeding of the 5,000, it would have reminded people of the Old Testament where Elisha tells a servant to feed a group of 100 prophets with 20 loaves of bread. And that servant says, yeah, that's not happening. I'm paraphrasing. And Elijah says, yes, it is. And the power of the Lord, it is happening. And the prophets were fed, and there was bread left over according to the word of the Lord. See, we see glimpses of Jesus throughout the Old Testament in these little shadow stories. And when we see Jesus in these stories, they're just so much bigger, as we're going to see in a moment. So like, so like the story before us in Luke, a servant commanded, was commanded to feed the hungry, and he expresses doubt. Well, also, they tell Herod, it could be some other old prophet, Old Testament prophet. Maybe it's Jeremiah. That's speculated in Matthew's gospel. Well, why Jeremiah? Because, and it's not that Jeremiah, it's, it's the Old Testament Jeremiah. Um, Jeremiah was active in Israel during a time of national subjugation and persecution, much like the time that Jesus was living in. So he's a possibility. And finally, Moses. Jesus also was viewed as a new Moses. In Deuteronomy 18.18, 18, God tells Moses, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. Jesus' feeding the 5,000 also echoes the provision, God's provision for the Israelites in the wilderness after leading them out of slavery in Egypt. The people complained about not having enough to eat. If you recall in the story, they actually want to go back into bondage because they're not getting cucumbers in the desert. They complain about not having to eat, and God miraculously provides manna from heaven each morning to meet their needs. In today's passage, we see Jesus looking up to heaven for miraculous provision. Later in the same chapter of Luke, the kingdom of God breaks through at Jesus' transfiguration, where we see him in his heavenly glory talking to, hmm, Elijah and Moses as he's preparing his exodus and heads toward Jerusalem for fulfillment of his mission. Who do you say Jesus is? Then as now, popular wisdom of the day creates its own narrative regarding Jesus' identity. We've just heard some of them. One difference is that our culture, in our culture, such speculation tends not to give Jesus as much respect as even Herod did. Jesus' works are, were seen primarily in Herod's time as prophetic in nature because he was healing people and challenging them to repent. That the, miracles were, that the miracles Jesus performed were authentic was without question in Herod's time. But in a pluralistic culture 2,000 years later, we're okay with placing Jesus among the greatest religious teachers of all time, but the idea of him possessing miraculous power is not only impossible, but is considered ridiculously primitive. The idea of Jesus as merely a great teacher doesn't offend our religious or our secular sensibilities. It's culturally safe. 
Daryl L. Bach puts it this way, yet the entire Gospel of Luke declares that Jesus defies our attempts to categorize him. The claims of Jesus are not one among many. They're not simply words to live by. Jesus brings a unique time of fulfillment of God's plan of salvation that calls for decision. You can't be on the fence with this question about who do you say Jesus is. Then as now, people both inside and outside of religious circles love to speculate regarding the person of Jesus. But here's the thing. That doesn't make their speculations correct. We like to speculate about the person of Jesus. I do it every day. And I'll tell you up front, that doesn't make my speculation correct. Herod appears interested in seeing Jesus only out of some kind of curiosity. He longs to see them in a way that we, in our culture, want to meet a celebrity. Who do you say Jesus is? Who do you say Jesus is to yourself? Who do you say Jesus is to others? <laughs> now, beginning in verse 10, we see that the apostles have returned from someplace. Well, the apostles, if you read earlier in this um, chapter, the apostles had been on a mission. Jesus had sent them into the land by twos, and he had given them power and authority over demons to cure diseases, and he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. They had a lot to discuss while they were returning. The apostles withdrew to a secluded place to begin a debriefing with Jesus. Each of the four Gospels places the feeding of the 5,000 at a slightly different point in the overall narrative. Luke's narrative spotlights the importance that Jesus gives to the concept that he'll minister through his servants and that they will do even greater things, not by their power, but by his as the, as the apostles began to unpack their gospel-sharing experiences, a whole lot of people show up. They're tired. They've already been on mission. Some of you know what this feels like. Mission is wearying. And here is Jesus having a sit-down debriefing with them, and the throngs appear. Now, despite the importance of that meeting... Despite the weariness and excitement of the returning apostles, Jesus does three things. First, he immediately welcomes the crowd. Now, what he's doing is important with the, with the disciples, don't get me wrong. But he stops, and he immediately welcomes the crowd. He preaches the kingdom of God, and he cures those who have need of healing. I'm going to say that again. He immediately welcomes the crowd, he preaches the kingdom of God, and he cures those who have need of healing. These acts help us both, excuse me, these acts both help us see how the crowds identify Jesus as a noteworthy person, but how they will soon see that those comparisons fall short. Jesus is so much more. Now, as the day wears on, scholars think it's probably after four in the afternoon, 
the disciples began to express some concern, some real practical concern. There are a bunch of people here. There are 5,000 people. How and where are we going to be able to feed them? So here we have Jesus preaching the kingdom of God. And in the middle of that, in the moment where the kingdom of God breaks through into Christ's message of hope and restoration, the cares of the day intrude. The apostles respond in an all-too-human manner. Does this feel familiar? Like, Jesus! Oh, yeah, we got to do this now. It's interesting to note that the disciples assess the situation by their own reckoning, rather than seeking guidance from Jesus. Rather than seeking guidance from Jesus, they presume to tell him what he needs to do to address the situation. It's kind of funny, but it's not. It's not because I do this all the time. I try to tell Jesus how to manage my crises. Do I, do I, do I know who I'm talking to? So while earlier in the day Jesus welcomed the crowd, his disciples' impulse is, send the crowds away. During their time with Jesus, he'd seen them he, they had seen him perform countless miracles. He calmed a storm. He cast out demons. He raised people from the dead. In addition, they had just come from a mission where they had been empowered to cast out demons and heal people. And they had, under the authority and power of Jesus, literally performed miracles. Did they forget that? Do I forget that? Have I forgotten what Jesus has done in my life? So while the words are leaving their mouths with instructions for what Jesus should be doing, Jesus has a different strategy. His response, to say the least, must have been startling. You give them something to eat. Wait, what? Jesus, they survive, clearly does. You don't grasp the situation here. We're going to give them something to eat? They had five loaves of bread, two fish. That's what they managed to round up. That won't feed 5,000 people. There's no time to cater this event. The Gospel of Luke tells us that Philip says it would cost two years' salary to finance the catering for this event. And Jesus says to them, you feed them. Now what Jesus has done here, and most of you know that I'm a public school teacher, and what Jesus has done here is identify what we in the education profession call a teachable moment. Whenever I go to meetings, they love to talk about teachable moments. He tells his disciples to perform a task that he knows they are incapable of completing to drive home a larger lesson. Now, I do this at school. From time to time, I encourage my students. I teach um, journalism, so they have a news magazine. I encourage them to contact school board candidates and invite them into our room so that they can interview them. 
And that gives them a heady sense. I'm going to interview an important person. Yeah, get on the phone and invite them. I know the school board candidates aren't going to say no to children who are inviting them during a campaign. That's not a thing. So they always show up. <coughs> so my kids, my students, they feel empowered. Yeah, invite them. They get off the phone, got all the appointments lined up. Now what's going to happen? I don't know. It's your publication. You told us to invite them. Yeah, what are you going to do with that? You should see the looks on their faces. They want me to write questions for them. They want me to point them in whatever direction. I say, you know your audience. You are your audience. What do you want to know? What do you think they want to know? And then I kind of walk away with a smirk. That's what I do. <coughs> but Jesus, see, what I'm trying to do is move them away from dependence on me. That's what we do as, as parents. We try to move our kids away from total dependence on us. But Jesus, on the other hand, wants to increase his disciples' awareness of their dependence on him. And he doesn't leave them hanging. Instead, he reveals how he will use them to carry out his strategy, telling them how to get the crowd ready for this impromptu banquet. Jesus provides the meal, but not before revealing his disciples' inability to do so. Now, after the multitude has been fed, 12 baskets of surplus remain. 12 baskets, 12 disciples. You think Jesus is making an emphatic point here? Jesus chooses to involve his disciples in the task. In a sense, he's preparing to pass the torch of ministry to him, to them. He's not going to be around forever. I mean, he is, but not here, not among them. So he's getting them ready for that. His call is to serve and provide for others out of compassion. And it requires that we stop focusing on our own limitations and consider how we might reach others with his gospel. The call to minister through him is through him and for him. If we're not operating within that con construct, guess what? We're not doing ministry. If we're doing it for any other reason than doing it through him and for him, it's not ministry. I don't know what it is. Self-aggrandizement, maybe. Guilt, duty, lots of things. It can be, but it's not ministry. In feeding the 5,000, the disciples have been part of something they never dreamed of but only through their association with Jesus. Only the limits of their vision can prevent them from sharing the gospel, which can only be delivered in the power of, we sung it this morning, Christ alone. With this miracle, the first half of Jesus' ministry has reached its apex. He's been, for a year and a half, going throughout Galilee, spreading the news of the kingdom, healing the sick, but he's getting ready to turn his face toward Jerusalem, where he will go to complete his mission. And he's shown himself to be the Son of God, the long-awaited Messiah, and he's soon going to be crucified. He's going to suffer, he's going to die, he's going to rise, and he's going to ascend to heaven. Tim Chester says, Jesus is preparing the disciples for his absence. 
The day is coming when he will give them, as he gives us, another impossible task. To proclaim repentance and forgiveness to all nations. What can we do? Jesus asked us that that Jesus asked what resources we have, and he asked us to have faith. The day the disciples took home 12 baskets of leftover food, the impossible task was not only completed, but it was over-completed. And those 12 disciples are now 2 billion disciples and counting. Now, one of the aspects of this miracle in the wilderness is often overlooked. Jesus' ability to create an immense feast with a few morsels of food is on display, yet this act also points to a similar event when God will accomplish his full plan. In the first century Judaism, fish and bread were staples in the diet of the poor. More importantly, many Jewish thinkers believe these foods would be part of the Messiah's banquet with his people in God's presence at the end of history. The prophet Isaiah announced This banquet, 800 years before Jesus fed these people in a field. Here's what Isaiah wrote in chapter 25. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up this mountain, the covering that is cast over all peoples, The veil that is spread over all nations, he will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the approach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him, that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his celebration. So there's some interesting things on this menu. There's rich food, there's good wine, and there's death. One of these things doesn't belong here. There's death. Death itself is on the menu because he will swallow up death, which makes this feast perpetual. And this perpetual feast is known as the Masonic Banquet. God's Messiah will defeat death, put the world to right, and let us enjoy God's presence. His coming world is provision, is plenty, and satisfaction. In feeding the 5,000, Jesus initiates this celebration that will be fully realized when he returns. He's showing us that in him, even now, we begin to enjoy that which God promises to his people at the end of the age. The disciples want to send people away. Jesus makes it possible for them to stay. Eventually, the disciples got the connection Jesus was making here. But this event in the field was tangible for them. Jesus often provides tangible evidence to provide us with glimpses of that which is now not tangible. Celebrations around food mark all of the key moments in our lives. 
graduations, weddings, baby showers, promotions, retirements. They're all celebrations. But the celebration Jesus points to will relegate each of those highlights of our lives to mundane by comparison. The amazing act of feeding 5,000 plus people, in that act, Jesus reorients our focus and challenges our expectations. I got to ask you this do you believe this miracle actually happened? Do you, 21st century man, believe it? The disciples saw it happen. But it's not as tangible for us, is it? I haven't read anything similar about this in the newspaper recently. Nothing like this. Do you really believe who Jesus is? Now, we live in a world of hunger, pain, suffering, want, and even in this prosperous culture where most of us get enough to eat, we're left feeling unsatisfied. Our existence in this life is fragile. We're subject to economic downturns, food shortages, disease, war. Any which of those could arrive with very little notice or no notice. This is our kingdom. This is what we have made apart from God. This is the world in which we live. D.B. McClay Excuse me, I'm transposed. B.D. McClay, a columnist for The Week, which is an online uh, news aggregate service, recently examined what she calls the soothing dullness of technology while exploring a social media platform called Curious Cat, which allows its users to answer and ask questions anonymously. Here's what she writes about Curious Cat. We like to do this in part because that's how you restore the aspects of in-person friendships to virtual ones. But we also do it because we're lonely. Lots of us get up in the morning and wonder if anybody would notice if we didn't. Lots of us wonder how many people in our lives know us very well. How many of them would want to and how many of them would care to know us if they did? That they turn for some kind of reassurance to the anonymous arms of strangers isn't that surprising. Who else has a desire to know you that you can trust as sincere except those who don't know you at all? Who else has a desire to know you that you can trust as sincere? In welcoming us to his banqueting table, Jesus shows us he has that desire. To him, we're not anonymous strangers, but rather individuals created in his image designed for intimate fellowship with him. I'm going to go to the standby Tim Keller quote because it's really good. He writes, To be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved is, well, a lot like being loved by God. It is what we need more than anything. It liberates us from pretense, humbles us out of our self-righteousness, and fortifies us for any difficulty life can throw at us. We long to make sense of our lives. We long to matter. Only Jesus satisfies that longing because 
He alone is sufficient. When Jesus repeats Herod's question to his disciples, Peter's answer, the Christ of God, appears in response to Jesus' provision for the 5,000. Kent Hughes points out that in the previous chapter of Luke, the person of Jesus is being revealed. In chapter 8, Jesus establishes himself as the Lord of nature when he quiets a storm. He establishes himself as the Lord of the supernatural when he casts out demons. Following that, he establishes himself as the Lord of providence, ruling over time, space, people, and words. And then he establishes himself, establishes himself as the Lord of life and death. He resurrects a little girl. And with the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus establishes himself as the Lord of creation, providing a glimpse into the same power that called the universe into existence, the power to create something from nothing. He literally produces bread and fish from between the palms of his hands. Jesus doesn't belong among us. His ways are not our ways. They're otherworldly. In feeding the crowd, Jesus provides us a glimpse of that other world. One that his arrival on earth has initiated. Jesus' actions were a sign of God's coming world. He's proclaiming, this is the kingdom. How are we to respond? Revelation 4 gives us an indication. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to, whom, to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him whose li who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. How are we to respond? Like heaven. Like the people who really know who Jesus is. In the most profound of ways, Jesus continually demonstrates his sufficiency to his disciples and to us. No matter your sin... His provision is sufficient. Imagine your worst possible sin. Think about it for a minute. Most of you probably haven't committed that particular sin, but some of you have. And we're all capable of all of them. Jesus' blood is sufficient to cover that sin. He's sufficient to forgive that sin. Now, last week, Pastor Jeremiah preached on Jesus forgiving a sinful woman. In that Luke 7 passage, Jesus had been invited to dine with Simon the Pharisee and with his company of religious leaders. As Jesus took his place at the table, a woman barged into the proceedings. A woman, a prostitute. She bathed Jesus' feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. What inspired her to force her way to the table of her accusers? 
What inspired her to push past the religious leaders who emphatically rejected her and told her she wasn't good enough, told her she wasn't deserving? What led her to such a self-unaware act? Why did she not cease to shed tears? She understood the depth of her sin, which had caused her profound sorrow. But she also grasped the sufficiency of Jesus to forgive those sins and to restore her. She received the joy of acceptance. Now, the wellspring of that woman's tears flowed from yet another source. Jesus not only is sufficient for her salvation, he also is sufficient for living. Her sins were forgiven, her faith had saved her, and Jesus said, go in peace. So her tears also reflected boundless gratitude for the author of that transaction. In Romans 8.32, the Apostle Paul writes, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Jesus is more than our salvation. He's our life. After calling his disciples to participate in the miracle of the wilderness feast, Jesus asked them who the crowds say he is. The response echoed the speculation of Herod's court. John the Baptist, Elijah, a resurrected prophet of old. Then Jesus pointedly asks them, but who do you say that I am? In response to who he really is, Jesus calls his disciples and us to serve the hungry. Physically, spiritually hungry. To point our community to him and his gospel to proclaim the kingdom. Now last week, Karen and Gary McGann did just that. They're members here, they're partners here at Cross Point Coast. They volunteered to play host to a meal designed to invite Cross Point community and their family to get to know each other better. Only Ernest Adelaide placed his name in the salt shaker bag out there on the table. To make the meal more of a celebration, the McGann's directly invited another couple. But on the day of the meal, Ernest called to ask if he could bring some friends. And Karen said, yeah, of course. Expecting a small group, the McGann's saw their house filled with people, most of them they had never seen before. I imagine that as the guests arrived, Gary and Karen had a few concerns about having enough food because the response to their invitation was unexpected. But in the end, the guests were fed. And you know what? There was food left over. Our community group, at our community group meeting this week, we celebrated. <coughs> Excuse me just for a minute. Ernest shared how his friends had responded to the McGann's hospitality. He told us that his friends said they had never before met this kind of Christian. 
that the kind of Christians they had known were the kind who would judge the likes of them. The McGanns and Ernest showed them Jesus, welcoming them, comforting them, and proclaiming the kingdom. How could we not celebrate news of that party at our community group? Now, the fundamental point of today's passage is its recognition about who Christ is. Daryl L. Bach says, there's no greater tragedy or error of judgment in life than to underestimate him. To miss the one who possesses the gift of life is to miss life itself. To understand him as the Christ without understanding who the Messiah really is, leaves us short in understanding Jesus. There's a hierarchy in the plan of God, and Jesus stands at the top of it. Ministering for God on our behalf, ministering from God on our excuse me, ministering for God on our behalf from the right hand of the Father. Now, one of the ways we share this good news with our community is to follow Jesus' example of taking time out to welcome our neighbors, to proclaim the kingdom and comfort those in need of comforting. And Jesus often does this by way of a meal. He has called us to, by his power and authority alone, feed those who are hungry, physically and spiritually. And we've looked at three banquets today in this passage. Herod holds an exclusive party to exalt himself, inviting only the powerful and the influential. Herod's party ends in death. In the wilderness, Jesus welcomes everyone, including the poor, to his party. His motivation is compassion. He proclaims good news. And that party ends with everyone being satisfied in the moment. But Jesus also points us to a greater banquet, a future banquet where those who are in him will feast with him and be eternally satisfied. Today and every day, let's remember to remind ourselves of the answer to the question, who do you say Jesus is? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that it provides us with the answer to that question of who Jesus is, and yet we keep going back for more because our minds are not capable of imagining all that Jesus is, all who Jesus is. Lord, we thank you for community to point each other to the answer of that question of who we say Jesus is. We thank you for your gospel that you have given us and that you invite us into your mission to share that gospel. We thank you that you are sufficient for all our needs. Thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.